0: be seated. Well, good morning, Calvary Church. How's everyone doing this morning? Good? Good to see you. I have uh, one basic announcement before we begin the sermon. Uh, Kids, and my own daughter pointed this out, Uh, our kids' bulletin is blank today. Usually they have a lovely fill-in-the-blank for all the sermon notes and the points. And it doesn't mean that the sermon has no point. Um, But I want to encourage the kids, if you draw a picture and bring it to the person, you can get your candy afterwards. So you got that, Lydia? Yeah. All right. Well, this morning, I want to invite you guys to pray with me as we turn our attention to God's word. Father in heaven, it is our hope that you will build your church and Lord we need your word to speak to us today Lord to hear how our Lord Jesus is who we should attend to that it is him who we should be paying attention to that his, his work on our behalf Lord transforms the way we think the way we think about our brothers and sisters here this morning the way we think about our ourselves. So I pray, as we look at this passage in the life of the Lord Jesus, would you please come to us, speak, inspire, and challenge for your name's sake. Amen. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. If you have one of those black Bibles, it's 861, page 861. This morning, we're going to consider an early episode in Jesus' ministry when he heals a paralytic man who is lowered through the roof tiles of a house in Capernaum. This is also recorded for us in Matthew and and Mark, and if you look at the accounts that are given, they're very, very similar. So it's a story that was very important for the early church to be recorded and brought to us, and we want to think about why that might be this morning. At the heart of this passage is the question of forgiveness. And as we read it, I want you to think about what the average Canadian, maybe your neighbors, your colleagues, somebody um, in your family, what they would think about the following two questions. Number one, what is forgiveness? And number two, who has the right or the authority to forgive? So let's start reading in verse 17 together. Hmm. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on, And went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Now, this scene is actually at the beginning of our Lord's ministry before he's gathered together all of his disciples. The next passage includes finding and calling Levi, that tax collector. And Jesus is in a place called Capernaum which is one of those tiny villages on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, kind of at the top of the Sea of Galilee. It became a bit of a hub for our Lord, a home base. Some say this might have been his actual house, where he was sitting when they came through and destroyed it. In our passage, Jesus has actually just returned from a trip around the region to nearby villages, some towns, some cities. He's been in the south, and he's been around the Sea of Galilee. And he was preaching and causing such a stir. And he was healing people and shocking everybody. And the reason why these scribes and these Pharisees come to see him in Capernaum is precisely because of all of this ruckus that he was causing in the neighborhood. So, I don't know, let's sympathize for a moment with these Pharisees and these scribes. They kind of get a bad rap, right? I mean, all the kids here probably could tell you, when you hear the word scribe, or you hear about a Pharisee when you're in church, you know you're talking about what? The bad guys, right? But these are your academics. They're lawyers. They're theologians, kind of all put together in one package. And the spirit of the scribe and the Pharisee began with a love for God, a love for God's law. But by the time our Lord came on the scene in this backwater up in Galilee, this love for God's law had accrued a very thick layer of man-made laws. But you can see their logic. Just how you can see the steady progression of rules from a helicopter dad or mom, right? You know, don't go play on the street. You might get hit. Actually, that's probably a good thing. You, should, you don't want your kids to get hit. Um, but the helicopter parent is trying their best to keep their kids safe, to help them flourish in life. But unfortunately, it does the opposite. It stifles them you got to give your kids some freedom. they got to make some mistakes, right? Here's the logic of our scribes. Step one, our job is to help people to know and obey God's law. Seems pretty clear. This included laws for various ceremonies and sacrifices and laws for behavior in public or private. It's like, okay, we need to make sure God's people know these things. They know the law of Moses how do we do this? Well, here's step two of the logic. We need to set up some basic, you know, very non-intrusive rules to facilitate step one. Here's a few examples. The temple requires clean sacrifices, right? Pure, pure animals. What happens if someone brings an inferior sacrifice? Well, it's our job to kind of let them know what the standard is, right? Make sure they don't anger God. We also need to find a way to provide for them, because they might have walked all this way to Jerusalem with this animal that isn't really pure and can't be used in the sacrifice. So we'll set up a system where they can buy and exchange goods to get the right animal. That seems pretty logical, right? It makes sense. Everyone's like, wait a minute, this is the Pharisees. How about another example? How far are you allowed to travel on the Sabbath day? Now, there's a long rabbinical tradition. These are your Pharisees in their little towers writing and trying to figure out what the word of Moses says, what the Torah tells people about what they can do. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 29, we get this statement from Moses about how far you can go on the Sabbath day. Each man shall stay put and not leave his place on the seventh day. That's it. You go ahead. You interpret how far you get to go on on the Sabbath day based on just that line. They came up with basically one kilometer, so a one kilometer radius or 2,000 cubits. That's how far you can go. That's the benchmark. But wait, what if you live in a tent? What if you live in the city and there's walls all around that would impede you? Do you get to kind of go up to the wall and then keep the 200 meters on the other side that you get and go on the other side? What if what if everything's really spread apart and your family lives just beyond the one kilometer range? What if my donkey gets loose and it goes past the one kilometer radius? What Can I go and get my donkey? Well, the spoiler alert is you, you can go right to the edge. And this is in rabbinical tradition. You can call Eeyore and say, come on back! But you can't actually go that without breaking this uh, Sabbath law that they had constructed. So these are silly questions, right? In some ways, but when all you have to go on is from Moses, each man shall stay put. It's difficult to set out a standard. How would you tell people if they asked you, can you interpret this for me? Uh, How far am I allowed to go? So, look, the scribes and the Pharisees had a bit of a difficult job and they used this idea of building laws that helped to clarify what God had said, and they slowly built layers into the system. And the problem is that these deliberations and bylaws essentially generated a moral standard that went past or surpassed God's standard. And this is why in Luke 11, a little bit later, Jesus calls the Pharisees hypocrites, saying they tie up heavy Burdensome loads, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Jesus' teaching represents an alternative to this whole Pharisaical, rabbinical tradition, which is the reason why, or at least one of the reasons why, the scribes and Pharisees are coming to see him in Capernaum from everywhere, from Jerusalem, from all of the neighboring villages. They want to hear what he had to say. And we read together another portion a little bit later, where on the Sabbath day, he's in the synagogue. And what are they doing? They're sitting there waiting to see what he will do. A little earlier than Luke 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew records it for us, he summarizes Jesus' reception from the people. The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So when we get to Luke 5, Jesus has already preached in many synagogues, he's healed many people of a variety of sicknesses, and he's been rejected by his hometown in Nazareth. Up to this point, though, the people he healed, he told them not to spread news of his authority. Kind of weird, right? The initial part of Jesus' ministry, up until this portion in Luke 5, he keeps telling people, you know, you're healed, but don't, you know, keep it quiet. Don't go tell anyone. And of course, everyone just, you know, loses their mind. They've just had their arm restored or their body's been healed of leprosy, so they go off glorifying God and everyone asks them, who did this? And, you know, they tell them. But he said the same thing to the demons too. He cast demons out. And it says in Mark, Jesus would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. This scene, friends, marks a change. This is the Pinnacle point in the story when Jesus decides to reveal his authority. So rumblings on the roof, you know, can you imagine? We had that storm come through. Maybe it wasn't that that intense. A loud noise, a burst of sunlight as the tiles or the thatch or the mud come crashing into the room. And then down comes this frail man in a cot lowered by some buddies of his. What's the first thing you would say to the guy when he uh, landed there on the ground? Your sins are forgiven. I doubt it, right? I don't think that's what I'd say. What would you do? What are you doing in my house? My roof. What does Jesus see in this uh, motley crew of people? I think he sees a desperate faith. But notice in our passage today, what is the response of these scribes and these Pharisees? They, do they see this, this faith? Who is this blasphemer? On what basis can he claim to forgive sin? Now, blasphemy, of course, is when you ascribe the activity or power of God to a man. That, we probably would all agree on that. The Pharisees certainly would. One of the fascinating things about these Pharisees is they recognize what is at stake. The authority to forgive sins. That is God's domain, clearly. The Pharisees knew that Jesus was claiming the right or the power to do something even the prophets never claimed. Even Moses, the greatest prophet in the eyes of the scribes. Remember in Exodus 32, the golden calf, right? Israel's by the mountain. They've just heard the voice of the Lord. It's scaring them silly, They don't know what to do. Moses has been up in the mountain forever. He comes back down and what does he see? Aaron's put together some God for them to worship. And he says to them, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. And when he goes up the mountain, Moses pleads with the Lord in the following way. Oh, What a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please, forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book that you have written. It sounds remarkably like what our Lord does on the cross, right? Except here in Exodus, there are two differences to what Moses is doing for the people of Israel. Moses doesn't ask to be a substitute As Christians, we believe that Jesus took our guilt and sin, and he gives us his righteousness. There's an exchange. Moses is saying, God will give you an ultimatum. If you won't forgive them, blot my life out also. It's another way of saying, if you're going to get rid of them, you'll have to get rid of me too. And he's kind of hoping, maybe I've served God well enough that, He won't want to scrap me, his servant, and start all over again. But it's a different thing than what the Lord offers us in salvation. The second difference, God actually says, no, Moses, sorry. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. So even Moses does not possess the authority to forgive sin. And it hints to us, as I've just been mentioning, at our need for a better mediator, right? A better savior. But this, guys, is why the Pharisees are so shocked. In their understanding, God alone has the authority to forgive sin. So, does this forgiveness shock you? Does it shock the average Canadian in 2022? The people you work with? Your friends? I think it does shock them. But not for the same reason that it shocked these Pharisees. You see... The Pharisees agreed with Jesus about the standard. Here's a standard for you. Forgiveness of sin is freedom from a moral obligation to God, which is caused by the violation of God's moral standard. I'll say that one more time. Forgiveness of sin is freedom from a moral obligation, a debt to God, which is caused by the violation of God's moral standard. If you've been to church for a while, You would agree with the Pharisees and with Jesus. That's forgiveness. It has to do with God. In Israel's long and sordid history, there was only one way, one means of accessing this kind of forgiveness. Sacrifice. Some kind of substitute to cover over, right? The wrongdoing and free the sinner from their moral obligation. The entire system actually depends on the maintenance of of this covering by what regular yearly sacrifices kind of like paint that you roll onto the walls of your house some of you if you have a lot of kids and they draw on the walls you have to pay more often it's more sin or maybe you damn you have a damaged house right there's shingles that are all over the place you have to re-shingle it's another layer but some of you live in really old houses how many layers of paint are on your house If you went and peeled it back, would it be five? It's the same thing with this system that they developed in Israel. They just kept covering each year a sacrifice to cover over. And this leaves our century, the 21st century, with a serious problem. Forgiveness requires a moral authority. What is the authority? Have you ever asked your friends this? What's the moral authority? Here in Canada. Who who is the moral authority? If you're going to claim that you're offended. Or there's some offense that has occurred. You're also claiming that there's a standard to judge the offense. The Pharisees in our passage. They agreed with Jesus about the standard. But today's Pharisees. They don't agree. In our day sin is what? A social construct. It has A relationship between two people, or maybe it's a community. But what counts as sin changes. Think about this stealing overlaps with our legal system, so everyone agrees that it's a sin. Murder can't murder people, that's illegal. But what about our sexual ethics? What about our environmental ethics? What about the ethics governing the proper use of grammar? What counts as a sin in our culture is going to change. And like I've been in the universities for quite a long time, 15 years ago, how many students at Carleton or U of Ottawa could tell you what a pronoun is? I mean, they probably couldn't tell you what an adjective or an adverb is either, but Remember, what what a pronoun actually is, it's this stand-in, it's an actor, it's representing somebody else. It has no reality or importance in itself. In our time, the morality of the pronoun has risen substantially. In fact, its position is so vitally important that it's one of the first things our young people will tell you about themselves. What's driving this? Well, it's the spirit of the new Pharisee, making new bylaws. New moral obligations for you and for me to follow. Don't you see? Man has never yet made a law for himself that he followed without erring. All man-made laws lead to hypocrisy. Watch children at play. Give kids a ball and an empty room and no instructions and see what happens. They set the rules for a game. They set the boundaries. And then, a few minutes later, in the middle of the game, the kid who made the rule breaks it. When the rest of the kids are like, what are you doing? You just broke the rule. That was the line. Well, the ball is still in bounds if any part of it touches the line. That's what I really meant when I made the rule. Kids are like this, but we adults are like this too. We change the standards. In fact, we've gotten pretty good at it. We trample on souls that are not nimble enough to keep up with these heavy loads of moral obligations that we pile on our society. You're destroying our planet. You're compromising our herd immunity. You're appropriating our culture. You're abusing our pronouns. Friends, the world is always ready to offer you some new bylaws, some new moral obligation to follow or a new standard to strive for. But it is not prepared to offer you what? Forgiveness. In fact, it's continually shocked by forgiveness. Have you been on social media lately? I don't recommend it. Have you seen the harrowing hallways of Twitter or TikTok or the comments section on Facebook? That's probably the worst one, right? What do you see there? Offense. 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 But no forgiveness. Cancel! Cancel! Cancel that guy! But, you know, even when we cancel people, the trauma still remains. People are ostracized, they lose their jobs, they have their reputations destroyed, to appease what? A new moral obligation. You know, the root of this idea of cancellation, it goes back to the bars on a jail cell in Roman times, and I think the French have a good Word for it, it's called oubliette, a place of forgetting. You put a person down a hole, you put a little grate over them, and they're gone. Hypocrisy is the jail cell of the soul. And whether you believe, as our culture does, that sin is relative, that it's just between people or communities, or if you believe, as we do, that it has a spiritual dimension, that you have offended God, in either case, It cannot be dealt with by the addition of more laws or more moral obligations. In our case, we have these new laws about how to govern your life, the environment, your pronouns. The Pharisees, they were trying their best to give new laws to help people understand how to be with God. It's the same stacking up of laws And our Lord had strong language for this kind of hypocrisy. You can hear it in the background of our passage here in his question. Which is easier, he says. Tell me, teacher of the law, you say a lot of things to these people. You tell them how to wash, how far to walk, how high to jump. You tell them all the ways they have broken the law. You shout your virtue from the temple steps. You tell these suffering people to be well, but can you make them well? Have you ever lifted a finger to make them well? Which is easier for you, Pharisee, to say or to do? Remember, Luke 5 is the first record we have in the life of Jesus where he openly claims the same authority as God. Why now? I think it's this extraordinary expression of faith. And what does our passage say about the faith that so moved our Lord to say to this paralyzed man before he'd even hit the ground, your sins are forgiven. Well, it turns out, rather little. This too must have shocked the the scribes. Look at uh, verse 20 here. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Look at this faith. Marvel at it. Just look. It seems way too strong. It's like it's done way too much work. The paralytic has barely hit the floor, and his soul is unshackled. Did he say anything? Well, not until he was raised up, and then he went home glorifying God in his pajamas. I assume it was his pajamas. He was in bed. Now, surely this, too, is kind of jaw-dropping and causes the Pharisee in us to pause and rise and protest a little bit, right? Had this man asked for his sins to be forgiven? Did he understand who he was going to see? Did he understand, really, the need for sacrifice and substitute? Did he have his theology sorted out? What about these friends of his? Notice how our Lord lavishes forgiveness on this one man on behalf of the faith of the entire group. Look at verse 20 again. A little closer. When he saw their faith. It doesn't say when Jesus saw the faith of this paralytic. It says the faith of them. What are we crusty Pharisees going to say to that? Is Jesus really suggesting that faith is somehow a group effort? Well, he doesn't seem to distinguish, but the point here is not that a community can exhibit faith in place of someone or on behalf of a person who is devoid of faith. Rather, the point is, a common faith unites us with one purpose because it has a common object. Sometimes you hear people say, my faith, or they say, my truth. That's, I like that one. With an emphasis on the my We say this in part to avoid offending other people, right? They may not share our beliefs, so I'm just talking about my truth right now. But it's the wrong way to think about truth and the wrong way to think about faith. Faith has very little to do with the subject and has everything to do with the object. Did this paralytic's faith originate with him or with one of his friends? Did they say, hey, Johnny, uh, Jesus is back home. Let's try and get to him. I'll call Frank and Dan. We'll take you up. Now, I don't really think they're called Frank and Dan and Johnny. You'll have to imagine some culturally appropriate Jewish names, but, well, I guess Dan would have worked, right? Anyways, someone had to convince all of the others in that group. Maybe one of them was like, this is a bad plan. It's going to be crowded. We'll never get there. Surely they had doubts, but it's not the point. Don't miss this. They were not looking at each other. They were looking for our Lord. And they were all looking so intently for that goal, getting this disabled man to the Lord that they took whatever path was available. It's a remarkable faith. And in Hebrews 11, we get a little snapshot of what this faith is. Faith is the assurance or the confidence of things hoped for. Faith is the confidence of things hoped for. This word in Hebrews actually comes to us from one of Aristotle's ideas that an object has real substance, something real. It has a being. It has existence. It's, it's an object. It's the very opposite of the idea of hypocrisy that's displayed by these Pharisees. Hypostasis, Confidence is something that can stand on its own. It's real. Hypocrasis, this hypocrisy, is something simulated or pretend or something acted like our pronouns. Faith is confidence that you actually really possess the thing that you were hoping for. And hypocrisy is faking this attitude to seem like you are. Jesus saw their faith. He saw their confidence in him. The kind of confidence that considers tearing off the roof an afterthought because the roof and their reputation in this community was of no consequence in comparison to the Lord. Can you imagine if they'd ripped the roof off and it didn't work out? What's going to happen to them in their their community? Oh yeah, there goes Johnny and Frank and Dan. They went and tore down Jesus' house. Something strong. In their disposition toward the lord moved them to go up they were so confident that he would make it right that he would know what to do that before they even began to pull back those tiles they experienced the reality of this hope children by the way experience this instinctively you know when a child is hurt they start crying out for their mother sometimes their father i was told Um, but usually in my case, it's for mom. You know, they hurt their leg or they hurt their arm or they're really hungry and they say, mom, they know their need and they have so much confidence in their mother that they will reject everyone else. Nothing else but their mother will do for comfort. In fact, it's such a sharp faith that even dads aren't good enough half the time. I'll be like, "Ah." I want mommy. Are you sure? I'm right here. I can help you. No, just mommy. Why? Well, it's the object of this child's faith that is essential. And this is why hypocrisy erodes faith, because it changes the object of our faith. Instead of looking to our Lord, what do we do? We start attending to ourselves, to our performance. Look with me at what our passage in Luke 5 tells us about the object of our faith as Christians. See this small detail in verse 20 again. He saw their faith. And pair this together with verse 22 a little later. Jesus perceived their thoughts. Now in Matthew's account, it says, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? And in Mark's account, Jesus perceived that they were questioning within themselves. Think with me for a minute about the kind of awareness or vision of our Lord. He can see faith. Can you see faith? Now, I don't mean like faith exists on some electromagnetic spectrum like just behind redshift or something, and he can pick up faith waves. That's not what it's talking about. Spiritual condition, attitude, heart. Can you see those things? It's hard for us humans to see this in other people. In fact, we often get it wrong. We'll accuse somebody of having a certain attitude or disposition toward us, and they didn't have that attitude at all. We are so easily distracted by the outward appearance. If you follow the rest of the gospel story, you see it over and over again. That the Pharisees failed to see beyond the externals. They were distracted by this legal framework that they had built around the law. Their questioning of Jesus was of an evil kind. It was stiff-necked doubt. You know that bristling feeling you get when someone calls you out for some attitude you have or some action you just did? and your heart kind of hardens a little bit, instinctively we try to turn those situations around. Who are you to tell me about my attitude? You know, Look at you. The Lord sees what man does not see. He sees the heart. This is why only our Lord is in a position to forgive sins. The new Pharisees of our time, they cannot see the heart. They can't even forgive the social sins that they condemn. The old Pharisees, from our passage, they can only cover sins through sacrifice. Our Lord became a sacrifice for us. It's on this basis that he can say so freely to this paralytic right as he hits the ground, your sins are forgiven. Don't you see? Jesus had faith in the father's plan of salvation it's a good plan it was already a reality in jesus's mind while he's here talking to these people in this village of capernaum and the pharisees could not see it how can this guy forgive sins on what basis and as christians we know the cross and jesus could see that he believed in forgiveness true forgiveness Not the kind that covers over like paint or brushes it aside or pretends that it doesn't matter. He took the whole endless system of sacrifices, endless attempts to cover over sin layer by layer by layer, past David, past Moses, past Abraham, all the way back to the garden when God first covered us with clothing. All of them were temporary, all were this patchwork on a worn garment. All of these were looking for a day when actual forgiveness would come. As Hebrews says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Abraham, Moses, David, all of them believed God. They trusted him when they could not see the full solution to the problem of sin our Lord took all of this to the cross and he made good on the promise of faith. If he is the object of your faith, though it's a frail faith, though you don't understand the depths of your need, though that old Pharisee in you tries to whisper some new laws, you'll be forgiven. Forgiven from this debt, this moral obligation. But you've got to look away from yourself and how it might appear to your friends, or to those in your community. you Have gone down through any roofs lately? Busted people's houses down? It's kind of embarrassing. You've got to take off the mask. You have to look at the Lord. And now I want to connect this word forgiveness just a little more closely with the cross. Here in Luke 5, Jesus tells this paralytic that his sins are forgiven him. It means that his sins have left him, that they've departed from him, that they have abandoned him. It's a word of movement. It describes Satan leaving Jesus after the temptation in the desert. Or the disciples when they left their nets and went and followed the Lord. Or a fever leaving a child. It describes the shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes to seek the one sheep that's lost and I think we rightly think of it as a figurative movement as well, right? It makes sense. This man's debt to God has departed. It has gone. It has been let go. On the cross, Jesus cries out to his father, why have you forsaken me? And it's a related idea. Our Lord is saying, why have you abandoned me? Why have you left me? Why have you let me go? And he knew the answer. I have been left behind so that this paralytic would not not be left behind. Jesus was left behind. His soul was crippled by the debt of your sin, the debt of my sin, so that this paralytic would go free. There was no one to carry Jesus into this village to a healer. Even these old Pharisees, they mocked him with this very idea too when he's on the cross and they say, He saved others. He can't even save himself. And he's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe in him. There's a pretty tragic irony in that kind of statement. And I got to tell you, the generation coming up now has this same spirit with it. Show me the evidence. This mocking attitude and heart. These same Pharisees, maybe some of them were actually present here in our passage in Luke 5. Kind of at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When he claims the authority to forgive sin. And then he backs it up with irrefutable evidence right there. These same Pharisees with their stony necks. They're the ones that have the gall to say at the cross, Hey, show us some evidence. Come on down from there. I mean, the irony is, and this is what's so tragic, is he did show them. There is the evidence. It was right there in front of them the whole time, but they uh, couldn't see it. Now, in closing, I want to make two appeals to you this morning. The first one is I want to appeal to those of you who, maybe like me, came to the Lord as a Pharisee. You grew up in the church, maybe. You fell in love with some detail, an argument of theology. Maybe you spent hours at coffee shops with other guys being like, what does this word mean? Like Saul, you had that kind of dangerous zeal about you, but you had very little compassion. And then the hypocrisy sets into your heart. Some detail in a song or a prayer that someone gave or a sermon or a conversation, it just annoyed you. I don't mean it convicted you, like it stirred you to repentance in your heart. I mean, it caused your tongue to cluck, you know? And you shake your head at this person. Oh, I don't I don't think he should have said that. Did you, did you hear how he said it that way? You've set some kind of internal standard, and you expect other people to follow it. You evaluated your faith by looking at your service or your performance. Maybe you became distracted by all of those... Uh, hip church trends, right? The books, the tweets, all the podcasts, right? Maybe you went and saw a celebrity pastor and you were just awestruck. I have good news for you, Pharisee. The charade is over. Look, we can all look together at the filthy rags and just have a good laugh. How did we think we were ever good enough? My appeal to you is this. Don't go back. Read Paul's life in Acts and the ongoing struggles that he has against this pharisaical spirit as it attacks the church all through the Mediterranean. Think about the book like Galatians. As George MacDonald once said, the old race of the Pharisees is by no means extinct. They were St. Paul's great trouble and are yet to be found in every religious community under the sun. My second appeal to you is this. I want you to forgive your brothers and sisters, especially those of us who are tempted to make new laws and make new rules that turn our eyes away from the Lord. Some of you are harboring bitterness toward people like that in this room. Maybe your neck is kind of stiff. I don't mean because you woke up, you know, with a stiff neck. You're holding people to a standard that even you don't keep. You've taken your eyes off of the Lord, and now you've turned them to your brother's sin. Let it go. You have the power to forgive because you yourself are forgiven. What a gift. Our world does not have this. There is no mechanism for forgiveness. You possess the authority to forgive others when they sin against you. It's not your power. It's our Lord's. You might be thinking, well, that's all well and good. But I think I need to see some repentance before I go forgiving people that have crossed me. That's backwards. If you have sinned against somebody else, repent. If they've sinned against you, forgive. Christ fulfills both. He enables you to see your sin and repent, He enables you to forgive. Both are His work, they're not yours. If this spirit of forgiveness guides us here at Calvary in this community, we too, like this paralytic, will find that our spirits are healed. We'll find there's a unity among the brothers and sisters that is maintained because of forgiveness. And we'll stand amazed and filled with awe at the wonder of God's glory among us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for this church. Lord, I can see your spirit moving. And we want to see our Lord Jesus as the object of our faith. True forgiveness, which comes from him. Lord, may we not look away to other things and come up and contrive new standards or laws that we think will help us. Let us point our brothers and sisters to the cross and see all our need met there. I pray as Calvary enters a new season that you would give us grace to forgive one another. To see your glory. In Christ's name we pray.